Welcome back, Swamp Folk. It's good to see you back for another video and another new year. Maybe I'm just getting old, but it feels like these years are going by much faster than they used to, that's for sure. Regardless, we're about to discuss the technically unsolved double murder of Julie Williams and Lolly Winnins from 1996. More commonly known as the Shenandoah murders, the couple was simply enjoying a romantic getaway when their lives were tragically cut short. Wikipedia lists Shenandoah National Park as having just under 80,000 acres and encompassing eight counties along with parts of the Blue Ridge Mountains in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Roughly 40% of the land has been designated as wilderness areas and is protected by the National Wilderness Preservation System. Most of the park's main road, Skyline Drive, traces along the mountain's ridge lines. The Shenandoah River and its broad valley are on the west and the rolling hills of the Virginia Piedmont are on to the east. Legislation to create the park was first introduced in 1901, but even Theodore Roosevelt's support wasn't enough to get the job done. Thus far, national parks were solely located in the west, the first eastern parks weren't established until 1919, and even then it was an additional six years before plans for Shenandoah were authorized in 1925. That's when the real struggles began. The creation of this park could be its own episode, but it finally became official on December 26, 1935. One particularly interesting detail I noticed when researching the park is that it seems to have less crime than many others we've discussed. While yes, there are some incidents and accidents to happen, there hasn't been a single murder since those of Julie and Loli in 1996. Anyways, now that you know a little bit about Shenandoah, let's get right to business. Julie was 24 years old and Lolly was 26. They met in the 1990s when they were both members of the Woods Women, a now defunct organization for women who enjoy learning and adventure. Both ladies were survivors of sexual assault and felt this group gave them a renewed sense of physical embodiment, power, and anatomy. Soon after, their friendship began to evolve and the two fell in love. According to Blue Ridge Outdoors magazine, Loli was a good time girl who enjoyed drinking and smoking. She was born in Michigan and in 1994 she enrolled in Maine's Unity College hoping to become a wilderness guide. Those close to Julie described her as a geologist in the making, a higher achiever, and a sports enthusiast. In college, she traveled to Europe where she studied the extinction of the dinosaurs. After completing her education, she moved to Vermont where she worked in a bookstore while searching for her dream job, which may have been the one she was set to begin in Lake Champlain on June 1st, 1996. Her future seemed bright and limitless when she and Loli planned a trip to Shenandoah as a celebration. In May, just a few weeks before Julie was set to begin her new job, the couple took their golden retriever, Taj, on a backpacking trip through Shenandoah. On Sunday, the 19th, they set off into the woods of White Oak Canyon Trail, pitched their tent, and emerged a few days later when the weather turned sour. The ladies were able to catch a ride with the park ranger and renew their camping permit before returning to the woods, which was around or on the 24th. With the rain gone, they climbed the Hawksbill Mountain before making camp next to a stream. Interestingly, they were actually quite close to the Appalachian Trail, so close that this case was almost included in our trail's deep dive. Did you catch that episode? If not, you should definitely check it out, you can find a link in the description. Sadly. 
Julie and Loli would never be seen alive again. On May 31st, Julie's father, Thomas Williams, reported his daughter missing, and a search was soon underway. The girl's vehicle was discovered north of Skyland Lodge, and hasty searches were conducted throughout the trail corridors in that area, hoping to bring a quick resolution to the case. While there was no sign of the women the first day, Taj was found wandering around unleashed. It was the next evening when park rangers discovered the missing women's campsite on Bridal Trail and with it, their bodies. It was only half a mile away from Skyland Lodge and being the weekend after Memorial Day, the lodge was absolutely packed. Countless people came and went during the murder's possible time frame. Within a 10 minute walk from a popular location, two women were bound, gagged, assaulted, and had their throats slit before the killer vanished. If you're wondering how such a brutal crime scene could remain undetected for such a period of time, that can be explained by a regulation requiring backpackers to camp away from designated trails, fire roads, and developed areas. Julie and Loli were only following the rules when they set up away from the high traffic locations. This tragedy rocked the LGBT community, and for many, it put a hefty pause to all backcountry adventures. 1996 was a much more difficult time to be gay. There were certain rules society expected to have followed, and that's exactly what these women had done. They were minding their own business, far away from the judgmental minds of society, yet that still wasn't enough. When knowledge of the victim's sexual orientation was made public, it sparked nationwide conversations about wilderness safety and homophobic hate crimes. Unfortunately, this fact brought additional challenges to the investigation, which we'll cover in greater detail shortly. Since Shenandoah National Park is exclusively federal jurisdiction, the FBI took point to the investigation with assistance from the National Park Service and Virginia State Police. In the time since Julie and Loli's murders, some sources state that the authorities have followed up on an estimated of 15,000 leads, but there has been little to no progress made in the beginning. They didn't have their first suspect until July 1997 when a Canadian tourist was attacked. Yvonne Malbasha was riding her bike on Skyline Drive when a man in a truck forced her off the road and her bike. He then yelled sexual profanities as he exited the vehicle and tried to force Yvonne inside. Luckily, she was able to fight him off, but once back in his truck, he made several attempts to run her over. Thankfully, she was able to duck behind a tree, avoiding injury. Eventually, the man fled the area, but he was apprehended by park rangers when trying to leave the park. His identity was revealed as Daryl David Rice, and when investigators searched his vehicle, they found hidden hand and leg restraints inside. At the time of this attack, he was single, in his 20s, and living in Columbia, Maryland. In 1998, Rice pled guilty to the attempted abduction of Avon, and he received 135 months in a Petersburg, Virginia federal penitentiary. The interviews conducted after his arrest led prosecutors to believe he may have been involved with Julian Loli's murders for a variety of reasons. There were the obvious parallels in the case, such as the geographical location and predatory behavior towards females. Though he had no previous criminal record, there is a mention of him being fired from a high school job for being extremely hostile at work. Former co-workers claimed he yelled profanities at them, punched a hole in the bathroom wall, stole their lunches, and even purposely bumped into them when they were carrying coffee. 
Needless to say, he was a bit of an asshole. This may not be much on its own, but at 8.05pm on May 25th, 1996, Rice was caught on camera as he entered the park at Front Royal, and at around 4.57pm the next day, he was shown at Rockfish Gap. He also returned with friends, Carol and Robert Ruckett on June 1st, which he freely admits, but he completely denied being in the park on the other occasions. On April 10, 2001, with only circumstantial evidence to go on, Attorney General John Ashcroft announced Rice's indictment for the murder of Julie and Lolly. In a news conference, prosecutors alleged that Rice made several statements admitting his enjoyment for assaulting women because they are more, quote-unquote, vulnerable, and that he believed the victims deserved to die due to their romantic involvement with each other. Rice was ultimately charged with four counts of capital murder, half of which he allegedly claimed due were to his victim's sexual orientation, which made it a hate crime. This meant his indictment invoked a federal sentencing enhancement that introduced the death penalty, but he was never sentenced. After years of attempting to build a case against Rice, there was still no forensic evidence against him. In 2003, new hope emerged when a hair from the crime scene was tested for DNA, but it wasn't a match for the suspect or either victim and the case fell apart. In 2004, the charges against Rice were dismissed without prejudice, meaning he could still be charged at a later date, and he was released from prison in 2011. His last reported sighting was in 2014 when the Durango, Colorado Police Department received multiple calls from frightened citizens saying they saw him in the area, but since there was no warrant for Rice's arrest at the time, there wasn't really anything they could do. In 2016, NBC Washington wrote of the FBI focusing its attention on the Shenandoah murders again. Special Agent Adam Lee was in charge of the FBI's Richmond Division, and even then, on the case's 20th anniversary, he didn't consider it to be cold. He even was quoted as saying, We will stop at nothing to find justice in this case until we have exhausted every means. We continue to exploit the existing evidence and try to obtain new evidence. Julie and Lolly are not forgotten by the FBI, and we are going to aggressively pursue every lead in this case. Even after the charges were dropped against Rice, the case was still being investigated as a hate crime, but Lee refused to discuss specifics. He merely said it would be irresponsible to speak of any new links that may have been discovered. It's also important to note that many were outraged by the handling of this case from the very beginning. An outside online article from May 2022 discusses the research done by journalist Catherine Miles concerning the efforts made by officials to minimize public relations damage and mitigate a sense of panic during their peak summer season. She argued that the reason behind waiting five years for a failed indictment rests with the NPS acting too slowly and the FBI performing ineptly. For anyone interested in a true deep dive of this case, Catherine Miles' book, Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders, is a must and was a great read for this video. It not only contains extensive research into the impact these murders had on the LGBT community, both women's lives and their relationship, it also provides an in-depth look at all the available information related to the investigation and investigators. In an interview with A&E TV, Miles described the FBI as keen on emphasizing that they really thought they had the right guy already. It's a sort of strange move. Secondly, it really seemed like the FBI was throwing the National Park Service under the bus. 
One point she made regarding how the crime scene was processed is that the law enforcement training tends to focus on urban crime. A key example includes how the first step in a homicide investigation is to secure the premises. This and so many other techniques simply can't be applied to a large outdoor area. Solving a murder that happened in a national forest is difficult enough, but due to limited funding, the rangers were also understaffed and ill-equipped to handle the situation. Perhaps most interesting is her research into a second suspect by the name of Richard Mark Evonitz and her strange arguments that he may be the actual killer. If so, his reasons may have had more to do with a history of child abuse, mental illness, and sexual sadism than his victim's romantic preferences, but we simply can't be certain. In a WTVF article, Miles explains that several forensic psychologists and former FBI profilers describe the crime scene as sophisticated, planned, technical, and logical. They, along with Rice himself and the psychologist who interviewed him, also said that Daryl Rice was coming completely unraveled. It's also her opinion that the DNA evidence clears Rice completely. She believes the idea that Julie and Loli were killed for being lesbians was nothing more than a political invention by John Ashcroft and local prosecutors. They were under enormous pressure to solve the case, especially since it became public knowledge that the NPS and FBI recklessly delayed releasing the news of finding the women's bodies. What initially put Ivanitz in the spotlight was his proclivity towards assault and murder in the southeast. Julie and Loli were only two of eight young females killed in a specific section of central Virginia within a 14-month period, but what kept Ivanitz in the spotlight is the fact that his DNA matched 799 out of 800 positions against the crime scene's mystery hair. In the single place it failed to match, there is a phenomenon called heteroplasmy which means the body misfires the protein. The FBI lab believed Ivanitz's DNA should be retested to determine if he was a true suspect. It was reportedly the agents who decided to go against the lab's advice and run additional tests on Rice's DNA instead. Based on information Miles gathered through the Freedom of Information Act, Ivanitz's DNA was never tested again. Now, considering he committed enough heinous crimes to have his own deep dive, you've probably been picturing him in prison he was still a free man this entire time when he committed suicide in 2002. Though it does seem police were closing in on him. Some sources state he told his sister, I've killed more people than I can remember, just before ending his life. The point is, even if he were an official match for the DNA, he would never be brought to justice. When asked why she believed authorities never zeroed in on Avonitz for the Shenandoah murders, Miles had three reasons. First, she theorized this was partially due to the Justice Department's unwillingness to back down, but the second reason was far more complicated. In 2002, enormous amounts of pressure to be hard on hate crime was placed on Attorney General John Ashcroft. Rice's case was the first to be the first federal hate crime trial in the nation. His indictment was announced in a national press conference where Ashcroft seemed to infer the indictment would somehow help our country heal from September 11th. Finally, she noticed that the investigators seemed to assume Ivanitz had a preference for children since some of his victims were young teens. She described it as their inability to understand that the same predator who goes after a 15 or 16 year old girl could also go after a young looking 24 year old woman. A 2021 WUSA 9 article includes an interview with Deidre Enright, founder and director of the Innocence Project at the University of Virginia School of Law. This is a program where law students volunteer to investigate cases seeking exoneration for the wrongfully convicted. 
Enright also believes the answer to this case is sitting in an evidence locker at Quantico. She noted that the fact that a DNA test from 20 years ago only just failed to pinpoint the killer and technology has made quite the advancement since that time. This was also the first source to specify the hairs were found beneath the duct tape and there was also male DNA on the gag left in Julie's mouth. Decades ago, when Rice's lawyers first pointed to Avonitz as the real killer, prosecutors said they had not one scintilla of evidence to support it. This also happened to be just before they dropped the charges. Tom Williams was also interviewed in this article. He fully rejected the idea that Ivanitz may be his daughter's murderer. He was quoted as saying, I think it's a ruse. They, being the FBI, are not the kind of people that are going to try and pin some guilt on somebody that's not guilty. They just aren't. Whether you agree or disagree with his statement, please remember this is a grieving father who has suffered one of the worst tragedies a human can possibly endure. Look, I've never understood much about politics if I'm being honest, but despite everything else, Julie and Loli's families deserve to know what really happened to their loved ones. They, they've been waiting for closure far too long already, plus at least half of the nation has been following this case for over 25 years. Come on already. Well guys, once again, that's the end of another episode. Who do you think is the actual killer here? Do you think Daryl Rice killed Julie and Loli? He just seemed like such a perfect fit, but DNA doesn't lie, my friends. I mean, I guess there could be human error here, but man, that's one crappy twist. Or do you think Richard Ivanitz is our actual murderer? I mean, 799 out of 100 positions is a pretty strong reason to retest if you ask me. But I'll stop harping on it for now. Hell, I don't know. Just tell me what you think in the comments. And yeah, I'm aware that I asked you a ton of questions. So hopefully you'll answer at least one of them. And with all that said, be sure to backhand that like button so you break its nose. Be sure to subscribe if you're new as it helps the channel grow. And again, comment down below letting me know your thoughts. I'll see you all soon with another creepy episode.